Hello, I'm Duncan Hollis, Temple Law School, and this is the fourth of five lectures in a mini-series on treaties and international law. In my first three lectures, we situated the treaty as a concept in history, functions, and doctrine. We examined the definition of a treaty and compared it to other methods for making international commitments. And we analyzed the question of who can make treaties or otherwise facilitate treaty making alongside a review of the relevant issues, rules, and practices for doing so. In this lecture, we're going to look at the ways to limit treaty making. Most notably, this can occur via the rules on treaty validity. But more discretionary limits are afforded to states via the regime of reservations, alongside the practices of understandings and declarations, which are often referred to collectively as RUDs, R-U-D, Reservations, Understandings, and Declarations. In my last lecture, I introduced a theme for thinking about the VCLT and the surrounding law of treaties as a set of default rules, uh, rules that can be varied by party consent, suggesting you know, party autonomy is a priority. That value, though, as we'll see, is not universal. The VCLT also includes a set of validity rules that can be used to impeach the existence of a treaty and of a state's consent to it, but as we'll see, they often just as equally favor the stability of treaties in the process. It is important to note at the outset that uh, per VCLT Article 42, the VCLT's list purports to be exhaustive. That said, per Article 43, the invalidity of a treaty via the VCLT rules will not impair any duties states have under a treaty to which they would otherwise be subject under international law independently of the treaty. Think customary international law obligations still hold. Um, so in other words, the VCLT and the law of treaties do not impact state obligations as a matter of custom. Okay, so let's talk about the grounds of invalidity. One critically important point to make here at the outset is the, as the VCLT does in Article 27, is that domestic laws cannot generally be a basis for invalidating a treaty. And here I'll quote the relevant text. A party may not invoke the provisions of its internal law as justification for its failure to perform a treaty that rules without prejudice to the one in Article 46. So what happens if a state joins a treaty having not followed its domestic procedures for joining a treaty? That's what Article 46 that's referred to in VCLT Article 27 is about. Um, under Article 46, a state may not, note the negative formulation, a state may not invoke the fact that its consent to be bound by a treaty was expressed in violation of its internal law unless, one, the violation was manifest, and two, it involved a rule of fundamental importance. The challenge lies in figuring out what constitutes a manifest violation. We might think about manifest as requiring objective and public evidence of a violation. Article 46 can't excuse a failure to follow secret procedures. It must also be a rule that was clearly breached in some way. And of course, that the rule that is breached must be of fundamental importance. In the United States, for example, uh, U.S. procedures include not just obtaining uh, a positive vote uh, of advice and consent to treaty ratification from two-thirds of the U.S. Senate, but also affixing the great seal of the United States to treaties before they're deposited. <clears throat> what happens if the sealing um, never happens or never occurs? Is that a manifest violation? Um, probably. But is it, a, is it a violation of a rule of fundamental importance? Speaking personally, I doubt it could so qualify. 
Doctrinally, Article 46 claims have had a poor track record in international litigation. In the land and maritime boundary case between Cameroon and Nigeria, the president of Nigeria signed an agreement that the court found to be a treaty, but he did so without submitting it for ratification by Nigeria's Supreme Military Council, which Nigeria said was a domestic legal requirement. The court declined to employ Article 46, where the Nigerian head of state had actual authority to conclude the treaty. Cameroon could not have expected to be aware of the claimed limitations, quote, unless properly publicized, end quote. And in any case, the court suggested that there was, quote, no general legal obligation for states to keep themselves informed of legislative and constitutional developments, reasoning that creates a pretty high hurdle, high hurdle indeed, for the applications of Article 46. The Court of Justice of the European Union has afforded a similar outcome uh, in holding that the European community must adhere to its consent to an antitrust agreement with the United States, even as it found that the European Commission had exceeded its authority in concluding that agreement. In short, Article 46 arguments are difficult to advance internationally. They do arise perhaps more regularly in domestic contexts, where politics generates calls to void consent, as was seen in certain objections made to U.S. consent to the 1977 Panama Canal Treaty. Of course, there's a catch-22 in such claims, as the domestic allegation of improper approval processes itself suggests an ambiguity in the very treaty-making procedures that are being challenged, which makes it difficult to assert such violations are sufficiently manifest. There are parallels between these errors with respect to internal consent um, and the idea of factual errors in treaty making and or the corruption of representatives. Two other grounds for invalidating a treaty um, under the VCLT, both rarely invoked and almost never successful. Error was famously invoked in the Temple of Priya Vieira case, but as in Cameroon, Nigeria, the court declined to support the claim on the facts before it. Fraud used to be an equally academic topic, but then Timor-Leste accused Australia of surveying uh, its communications and using the results to secure uh, Timor-Leste's assent to their bilateral treaty on certain maritime arrangements in the Timor Sea, or CMATs. Under VCLT Article 49, a state induced to conclude a treaty by the fraudulent conduct of a negotiating state may invoke the fraud to invalidate its consent to be bound by that treaty. And the definition of fraud in international law includes deliberately deceitful behavior in the formation of an international agreement. And so it's not hard to imagine that spying to obtain confidential and privileged information in order to gain advantage in a treaty negotiation is deceitful behavior. The question is whether that behavior actually induced Timor-Leste to enter the CMATS treaty. The details of the arbitration, however, are not public, so I don't have the answers for you on that. But it does suggest some potential for fraud as a basis for invalidating a treaty commitment. One validity rule that has spawned lots of state scholarly commentary is coercion. I'll give you a hypothetical. Imagine states A, uh, uh, state A gets state B to agree to cede its territory uh, in a treaty after state A had massed troops on the border with state B and installed covert forces within state B's territory to incite domestic disturbances. Could state B invalidate the treaty? Article 52 of the VCLT says a treaty is void if procured by the threat or use of force 
in violations of the principles of international law embodied in the UN Charter, including the prohibition on the use and threat of force in Article 2.4. As such, it would seem to cover the hypothetical. But if so, what about peace treaties? Why can't losing countries walk away from treaties forced on them by victors? Here I'd point out to the fact that uh, under Article 52, the requirement is that it has to violate the UN Charter. Where, where it doesn't violate the UN Charter, co coercion will not be available, right? It will only uh, 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 vitiate treaties that are occurred by unlawful coercion. If the coercion is done in self-defense or pursuant to Chapter 7 authorities under the Security Council authorization, then the availability of Article 52 uh, is much more difficult to sustain. Now, what about sanctions? A state under multilateral sanctions for over a decade, say, finally accedes to an arms control treaty after the economic costs of resisting accession have become too high. Is this coercion? As the term is used colloquially, it would be, but Article 52 itself was drafted only to apply to cases of a coercion involving the use of force or threat thereof. Indeed, it is not enough to garner a treaty via economic pressure. And the UN Charter negotiating his history pretty clearly on that point, excluded economic and political pressure from the prohibition on the use of force. Similarly, the negotiation, negotiating history of the VCLT also saw efforts to include political and economic pressure that were unsuccessful. Functionally, indeed, functionally, some pressure is endemic to international relations, which is probably why the idea of unequal treaties has little traction today, even if an historically powerful image. At the Vienna Conference, the non-aligned states were successful in getting the final act to include a declaration, a declaration on the prohibition of military, political, and economic coercion in the conclusion of treaties, uh, a political commitment to avoid, in other words, employing economic or political coercion to engender treaty consent, but that document was not binding. It is a political commitment to take us back to the topic in our previous lecture. Like other bases for invalidity, real-world examples of coercion via avoiding a treaty are rare. Uh, Anthony Ost offers one involving NATO and the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia's conclusion of a military technical agreement in 1999 on the theory that NATO's use of force versus the fry was not lawful, unless void, uh, and not subject to support even by a UN Security Council resolution. That issue, though, was never resolved, and the Fry subsequently withdrew its complaint about whether or not that treaty was valid or not. And then there's use cogens. Unlike the other examples, this one isn't a function of the process or the behavior of one side. It is a more fundamental idea. Use cogens, or literally compelling law, is the notion that there are certain preemptory uh, norms that states cannot breach by international agreement. And the idea is pretty universally recognized today. Um, but as uh, Anthony Al's scholarship has highlighted, the concept was originally highly controversial in the Vienna Convention negotiations, with the French government being prominent in its opposition. Nonetheless, the conference successfully resulted in the conclusion of Article 53, which states, a treaty is void if, at the time of its conclusion, it conflicts with preemptory norms of general international law. What's a preemptory norm? The VCLT defines it as, quote, a norm accepted and recognized by the international community of states as a whole, from which no derogation is permitted. It can only be modified by a subsequent norm of general international law of the same character. In other words, international law sources are not entirely co-equal, but there's a hierarchy of where sources at the top of the international law pyramid are non-derogable. 
They cannot be contracted around by treaty, while others, as we've seen, may be varied by party autonomy. So what's the problem? Everyone today agrees that use cogens uh, overrides treaty commitments. The difficulty lies in figuring out how widely the principle needs to be accepted. It says in Article 53 it needs to be accepted, quote, by the international community of states as a whole. But what does that mean? And just as importantly, who gets to say whether something is or is not use cogens? Certain candidates are widely recognized, including slavery, genocide, uses of force inconsistent with the UN Charter, uh, and torture. A treaty purporting to further one of these elements would appear to clearly run afoul of uh, Article 53 and be void. Beyond that, however, things get controversial. Some assert all human rights or certain environmental rights are use cogens, but frankly, there's not much in the practice of states uh, courts or others that reflect actual acceptance of such a wide-ranging interpretation of the term. Indeed, like issues of error and corruption, there are no reported instances of Article 53 being invoked for a treaty in the more than three decades since it was drafted. It has not, for example, been enough to overcome immunity in domestic cases, even where courts concede certain principles, like the prohibition on torture, are use cogens. So I guess at this point I'd say basically think of use cogens as a rule that determines based on the treaty's purpose whether it is valid or invalid, and that it's you know, a very narrow public policy exception, and while often asserted, rarely relied upon. So why is use cogens considered such an important idea then if it's so rarely applied? I think for starters, it introduces us to a naturalist or a policy-based uh, foundation to an otherwise positivist uh, orientation for the international legal order as a whole. Paradoxically, of course, one could cite its very inclusion in the Vienna Convention, in VCLT Article 53, as evidence of states' positive consent to having natural law rules brought into the international legal order. So maybe there is both a positivist and naturalist foundation for use cogens today. As for its implications for treaties, I think it stands as a critical reminder that states' power to make treaties is not unlimited. States just can't do anything they want by treaty. They have to attend to these rules on treaty validity. I'd like to move now to exploring more unilaterally imposed limitations on treaty making. To do so, let me offer a new hypothetical. Imagine a fisheries treaty involving three states, A, B, and C. The treaty seeks to regulate tuna fishing in their shared waters, to regulate fishing for swordfish, as well as imposing restrictions on fishing methods to avoid injuring dolphins. Now imagine states A and C deposit instruments of ratification. State B then does so, but its instrument of ratification contains a caveat, indicating that it does not agree to the application of the provisions on dolphin-safe fishing. Can state B do this? Assuming the treaty does not prohibit it, and given the treaty's other provisions to which state C consents, it would seem so. This, indeed, example is a classic version of a reservation, which VCLT Article 2.1d provides is, quote, where a state consents to be a party to a treaty, and in doing so, purports to exclude or to modify the legal effect of certain provisions of the treaty in their application to that state. In my hypo, though, State B only said it wouldn't apply the dolphin provisions. Does that matter? Can State B argue that they didn't explicitly reserve to anything? Here, again, I think it's important to recognize the law of treaties doesn't hew to formalities. So long as the desired effect in consenting would be to modify or exclude the treaty commitment, 
It doesn't have to be labeled as a reservation to count as one. I'd also note that although the VCLT suggests reservations must be made at the time a state joins the treaty, a practice of allowing later reservations has emerged, particularly in the UN depository practice. A late reservation may be accepted, provided no state party objects to it. And I would say that practice has been, although regularly used, reserved mostly to minor matters. Note, reservations are a feature of multilateral treaties only. So if the treaty I described were bilateral and between states A and B, and, and then states B's statement wouldn't constitute a request for a reservation, it would be a request for an amendment, right? An amendment to the treaty that state A would have to accept for it to have any legal effect. Now to continue with our hypo, imagine if instead of its earlier statement, state B joins, and this time its instrument of ratification indicates that it, quote, understands the treaty reference to dolphin to refer to the mammal, not the fish, which is more commonly known as mahi-mahi. In contrast to its earlier reservation, this would be a case where state B is not trying to modify or exclude what the treaty requires, so much as to express its understanding of what those requirements are. And indeed, we call these sorts of statements, unilateral statements, understandings or interpretive statements that often will accompany a state's consent to be bound. Consider now a third variation. What if State B's ratification contains a statement condemning overfishing by states and indicating an intention to seek to expand treaty membership to other states besides A, B, and C? It's not a reservation. It's not purporting to modify or exclude anything. It's not purporting to interpret any provisions of what is being agreed to. Instead, what we call this is just simply a declaration, a statement included in a state's consent to be bound that does not purport to have any direct legal salience. So my point here is that when states join treaties and they say things beyond their actual consent to be bound, we international lawyers must sort out what effect, if any, to give these statements. Is it a declaration, simply stating what the states believe, want, or intend to do? Is it an understanding, clarifying otherwise ambiguous treaty language so other states will be unnoticed as to how the state will interpret it? Or is it a reservation by which the state is seeking to change or modify the obligations it would assume under the treaty vis-a-vis -vis the other states? Collectively, as I said at the outset, you'll sometimes see these referred to uh, uh, reservations, understandings, and declarations as RUDs. Now I'm going to focus my remaining comments just on reservations specifically. They are uh, a common feature in multilateral uh, contexts. But why? What sort of problems could a state have with a treaty, even if they'd otherwise be inclined to join it? What, what motivates reservations? Let me offer a few possibilities. One is a state's desire to modify or exclude uh, a treaty's substantive point, right? Something that in the treaty text the reserving state disagrees with. You know, a uh, state reserves as to the International Whaling Convention's commercial whaling moratorium might be an example. In other cases, the reservation might not be to something about the substance of the treaty, but about its procedures, uh, as when states reserve out of compulsory um, ICJ dispute settlement. Often, states make reservations to better align the treaty commitments they are assuming with what their domestic law requires. Right? So states may reserve out of a provision that conflicts with domestic law, uh, whether constitutional or statutory, so that the treaty obligations they do assume are consistent with their domestic law uh, rights and obligations, and thereby avoiding any of that Article 27 VCLT issues I mentioned before, that you're not able to invoke your internal law to escape the non-performance of a treaty commitment. Finally, 
In a number of cases, reservations may allow a state to limit the geographic application of its treaty commitments. The general rule of territorial application under VCLT Article 29 is that unless a different intention appears from the treaty or is otherwise established, a treaty is going to be binding on each party in respect of its entire territory. Some federal states, however, are structured internally to give subnational territorial units, such as provinces, autonomy over matters that a treaty might regulate. In such cases, states might reserve to the application of the treaty to those of its territories that do not consent to the treaty's terms, while letting it apply to those of its territories that are amenable to being covered by the treaty. Some treaties anticipate this problem for federal states and actually include a clause, what's known as a federal state clause, that expressly contemplates that federal states would only be bound to the extent their federal competence uh, exists over the treaty's subject matter. Um, the popularity of such clauses has waned in recent years uh, as non-federal states have objected on the grounds that they create unequal treaty relationships. And here, I'd note as a quick aside that the question of reserving out of a treaty's geographic scope is quite different from the question of whether and when treaties will obligate state behavior outside of the state's territory. Some treaties, like the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, do so expressly, but there are long-standing debates in international human rights law as to whether and when states are bound to respect, protect, and ensure human rights when operating beyond their territorial boundaries. I won't say more on this at present other than to flag it as one of the areas for a more advanced consideration for your own further work uh, on the law of treaties. In any case, whether it's to avoid a substantive or a procedural provision to align with domestic law or to limit a treaty's geographic reach, it is easy to identify why states might prefer reservations, why they might want to join a treaty uh, and have the ability to reserve to one or more of its provisions. But why does international law allow reservations at all? On the face, they don't seem consistent with the rule of law as they allow states an ability to cherry-pick what binding obligations they'll assume after the deal has already been made. Indeed, it's clear that more reservations means less integrity for the obligations a convention provides. That said, on the other hand, the more one allows reservations, perhaps the greater uh, the incentive for participation. And indeed, the presence of reservations, we might say, guarantees wider participation in the treaty itself. So we see in the law of, of reservations kind of, again, this uh, you know, dual values that are in some ways in tension with each other, the interest in participation and the interest in integrity. And the question I'd invite you to consider is how well do the laws we're about to discuss, how well do they achieve a proper balance between maintaining treaty integrity but also ensuring that there's sufficient uh, attractiveness for states to join treaties and participate in them. The current balance, such as it is, is derived in large part from the International Court of Justice's seminal treatment in its 1951 ICJ advisory opinion on reservations to the Genocide Convention. That case made three contributions, at least three contributions, to the law on reservations. First, states cannot be bound by each other's reservations without their consent. Second, all states' parties do not need to accept the reservation for the state to join. That contradicts earlier practices, particularly in the Pan-American region, that had looked for a unanimity rule. Third, as a result, reservations are admissible if consistent with the object and purpose of the treaty. Now, it's interesting to observe that this case came, comes out of the human rights context. And it is, I think, fair to ask whether an approach the court derived for human rights 
where a state's obligations are vertically oriented between the state and the nationals that are in its territory or jurisdiction, is that that sort of a regime for reservations uh, analogous or applicable when we're talking about interstate horizontal commitments uh, inter se to each other. But whether or not it made sense to generalize the approach of the ICJ in the genocide case, that is exactly what the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties does. The object and purpose rule first articulated in the genocide case is now reflected in VCLT Article 19, where, unless the treaty text speaks to reservations, reservations are allowed so long as they are not incompatible with the treaty's object and purpose. Now, how do we know whether a reservation is incompatible with the treaty's object and purpose? That is a complex interpretive exercise that is often contested, particularly where a treaty text doesn't tell us what the object and purpose is. In some ways, you actually may have two interpretive hurdles, right? A question of what the treaty's object and purpose is, and then a second question on whether the reservation in question is compatible with it. On top of this lies an even more critical question. Who has authority to make such interpretations? In 1994, the UN Human Rights Committee tried to introduce itself as the authority to resolve such issues for the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, if not for all human rights treaties. The committee's General Comment 24 asserted a right to judge whether reservations to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights are compatible with that treaty's object and purpose, and suggested that if they were not compatible, that the reservation could be severed while holding the state to its consent minus its inadmissible reservation. Several states quite vocally opposed the Human Rights Committee's uh, opinions, most notably France, Spain, and the United States each of whom contested that the International Covenant gave the Human Rights Committee the capacity to make such judgments, let alone the severance outcome it had suggested. Rather, these states suggested they had the authority to disagree with the Human Rights Committee characterization of their reservations and to decide whether their reservations were compatible or the other states were, therefore leaving the question of the treaty's object and purpose to the state's parties to the treaty, not some third-party treaty body. To the extent international courts have weighed in on this question, they often take divergent approaches as well. The ICJ took on the question of whether a reservation to ICJ jurisdiction was okay in the armed activities on the territory of the Congo case. Rwanda had sought to dismiss the case for lack of jurisdiction on the grounds that its consent to the Genocide Convention included a reservation disavowing ICJ compulsory jurisdiction under that treaty. And the ICJ agreed. It reasoned that Rwanda's reservation was not incompatible with the Genocide Convention's, object, Genocide Convention's object and purpose in that there's a difference between the treaty's underlying obligations to prohibit and pursue uh, violations of genocide uh, and having an obligation for third-party dispute settlement with respect to those obligations. So in other words, the two differences, it was okay to reserve uh, on the procedural side even if a reservation on the substance might have been more controversial, if not uh, um, inadmissible. In contrast, the European Court of Human Rights offered a much more skeptical take on reservations in its treatment in the case of Loisadu versus Turkey. There, the court held that Turkey's attempt to reserve out of the convention's application to the territory it controlled in Cyprus was not admissible as it was attempting to avoid fundamental rules of fairness governing the European Convention on Human Rights. The court went on to sever that reservation saying that Turkey was still bound to the convention and to the court's jurisdiction without the benefit of its reservation. 
And now, this idea of severing reservations deemed inadmissible is in itself controversial. The VCLT does not delineate what effects follow from uh, having an inadmissible reservation, and there are multiple candidates. Some states insist that reservations should be assumed to have uh, been intended to form an integral part of a state's consent to be bound. So if the reservation is void, so too should the states consent to the treaty in the first place, dismissing their status as a party entirely. Other states, particularly in the Nordic region, have followed the Loisadu path and suggest that an inadmissible reservation should be severed and that the party held to the treaty without the benefit of its reservation. Others follow the so-called opposability school. They suggest that inadmissible reservations should simply be subject to the rules and acceptance we'll discuss in a moment. Finally, in its guide to practice on reservations, the International Law Commission proposed a new approach to bridge the severability and intent camps. The idea would be to have severability itself be a function of the intent of the reserving state. Kind of adopting a presumption that a state intends to remain a party to a treaty even if its reservation were later deemed incompatible with the treaty's object and purpose, unless the state expressed or can otherwise show a contrary intention. It's an innovative and perhaps moderate position, but the challenge is it has no foundation in the VCLT or pre-existing practice. So we remain left to see what future practice does and whether it gains any traction. I'd close out my discussion on reservations with a few words on how the VCLT layers on top of these admissibility issues a regime for acceptance. So basically, looking at the VCLT in Articles 19 and 20, we see a two-step process when it comes to reservations. Step one is the admissibility of the reservation, and here there are three options. If the treaty says no reservations are permitted, which complex treaties like the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea uh, or the Rome Statute do say, mostly to preserve the treaty's integrity, if it says no, treaty, no reservations are permitted, then no reservations are admitted and any reservation would be inadmissible. Option two is if the treaty limits itself to specific reservations. So the treaty allows for, say, a federal state reservation, but not reservations more generally. There, only the reservations that are explicitly permitted by the treaty are allowed, and conversely, reservations that exceed the scope of those permissions would be inadmissible. And, as we've already discussed, if the treaty is actually silent on reservations, reservations are perceived as allowed so long as they're not incompatible with the treaty's object and purpose. But just like the ICJ's genocide uh, advisory opinion suggested, it's not enough to have an admissible reservation through these three options. At least one other state party has to accept the reservation for it to go into effect. And here, VCLT Article 20 lays out four options for states when they're faced with a reservation by another state as it joins a treaty. Option one, the non-reserving state can expressly accept the reservation, making the treaty as modified by the reservation in effect uh, between the two states. Option two, the state can reject the reservation and decline treaty relations with the reserving state. Right? If it wants to do this, it must, if it wants to reject treaty relations, it has to do so explicitly. So that is, you, you, you are so unhappy with the other state's reservation, you seek to um, decline treaty relations entirely. Option three, the state can reject the reservation but preserve or accept treaty relations generally. And so the reserving state um, and the non-reserving state uh, are, are treaty partners except for the provision to which the reservation related, which drops out of the relationship. Now, I should also add here, it's worth noting that states can accept 
or reject reservations for any reason, right? Not just its consistency with the object and purpose. Hence, that's why admissibility and uh, acceptance are two parts of a united process. Finally, there's option four. If the state remains silent or fails to object, in that case, the Vienna Conventional Law of Treaty says that after 12 months, its silence will be deemed as acceptance. Right? So if you remain silent for 12 months, then you'll be deemed to have accepted the reservation. Now, the logic of these rules, to be candid, is not always evident. Indeed, so long as a state looking, is, look, is, is not looking to object to treaty relations wholesale, right, it may see little difference between objecting and accepting or staying silent. In the case of an objection, the treaty provisions do not apply to the extent of the reservation, while in cases of tacit or express acceptance, the treaty provisions are modified by the reservation. And where a state's reservation looks to strike a provision, the results are pretty similar. There may be more differences, though, when a reservation purports to amend a treaty in some way, right? Say, providing an obligation to eliminate production or consumption of some hazardous chemical within five years instead of ten. If a state accepts that reservation, asking for ten years instead of five, then both the reserving and the accepting state would be obligated to each other to meet the new ten-year window. Where if the state objects to the reservation but preserves treaty relations, then neither has an obligation to eliminate the chemicals, production, and consumption at all. It bears saying that all these rules regulate the legal relations between the reserving state and the reacting state. Relations among non-reserving states remain unaffected uh, inter se. The complexities of reservations and their application are notorious. As such, I'd urge care and caution in drafting around the issue, if you can, or assessing the current state of treaty relations in cases where there are multiple reservations deposited. All told, therefore, this lecture has sought to explore the various ways treaty obligations may be invalidated or eliminated. We've reviewed the high hurdles to vitiating a state's consent to be bound by a treaty, as well as other contexts that might invalidate a treaty commitment from the beginning, including domestic procedural violations, error, fraud, coercion, and perhaps most importantly, use cogents. We then took up the rules and practices for states permitting RUDs, reservations, understandings, and declarations. And reservations must be both admissible, that is compatible with the treaty text itself and its object and purpose, even if we're not sure who has authority to pronounce on that. But they also must be compatible uh, and in terms of being accepted by at least one other party, with the VCLT offering a complex set of options for states considering whether to accept, reject, or stay silent. In my next and final lecture on this topic, we'll review issues of treaty interpretation, domestic application, amendment, and treaty exit. I hope you'll join me for one last talk. Thank you for listening.